Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you flip through your high school yearbook, you'll notice the style of the decade right away. Maybe you're wearing aviator glasses and your hair is in big fluffy curls if you graduated in the 80s. Or your big time crush has a slightly mortifying jerry curl and clunky metal braces. As you begin to recall these high school years, you might notice a warm, wistful feeling in your chest. It's known as nostalgia. A number of memories can conjure up that feeling. I'm nostalgic for winter. I grew up in Rhode Island, and I lived near a place called the Ice Pond. We called it that because all winter long, it was frozen over, and kids would come from all over, and we would skate. My first pair of skates were hockey skates, my brother's, when I was about three years old. We spent the whole winter on the pond or on a hill nearby sledding, and it was just an amazing time in my life. I look back at it with great nostalgia. Thanks for that message. Now, nostalgia is a feeling we all experience, but it's a complicated emotion. Psychologists say the past can help us make sense of the present and can even offer us tools for a more resilient future. So when does nostalgia become a dangerous desire to return to a past that wasn't all that great? And how can we use nostalgia for good? We get into those questions and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. Uh, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Joining us for our trip down memory lane is Clay Rutledge. He's a psychologist and author of the new book, Past Forward, How Nostalgia Can Help You Live a More Meaningful Life. Also with us is Alan Levinovitz. He's an assistant professor of religion at James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. It's great to have you both. Clay, let's start with the basics. What is nostalgia? At its most basic level, you can think of nostalgia as our sentimental feelings, our sentimental longing even for the past. And so it's got that emotional component. Um, but also nostalgia is very much involves memory, so there's this more cognitive component too, which is when we feel that longing, when we feel that sentiment, it tends to 
bring to mind specific types of memories that we're very fond of, that we cherish. And usually these are like meaningful memories, me, uh, memories that we find personally fulfilling in some way. Alan, would you add anything to that definition? Yes, I'd want to emphasize that I think nostalgia also has a sense of loss built into it. So it's not just a, a fond memory, but it's also a sense of having had something once that was important, but that, that you don't have any longer and, and, and maybe wish you could access or miss in a, in a kind of wistful way. Mm-hmm. Clay, from a psychological standpoint, what's, what's happening in our brains when we feel nostalgic? So, you know, it, it was a good point to bring up the, that, that tinge of loss that's a, a component, too. So really what you can think of as nostalgia is kind of this, uh, you know, at the brain level is kind of this almost like regulatory, self, what we call self-regulatory resource. So often when something feels not quite right in our life or we're uncertain, you know, our brains want to stabilize. Like we're, we're constantly looking to reassure ourselves to feel you know, when we feel uncomfortable, we want to feel comfortable again. And what nostalgia does is is sort of it's triggered by that feeling of dissatisfaction or anxiety or stress in some way. And it's our brain's effort to like pull in information and feelings and like, what can we, you know, how can we stabilize the the situation? And oftentimes that means pulling from experiences that we, you know, we found um, worthwhile. So like a quick example, like loneliness is a big trigger of nostalgia. So when we feel lonely, it's, it's unpleasant. It's, it's social pain, and we want to alleviate that pain by feeling connected again. Nostalgia, we, so we bring to mind these nostalgic memories that are like, oh yeah, I used to have these relationships that were fulfilling. That takes us, you know, that helps us see a bigger picture. Like right now, I feel uncomfortable. I feel lonely, and that's not good, but life is bigger than this moment. And then where the regulatory component really comes in is that so that kind of encourages us. It's like, yeah, that's gone. I don't have that relationship anymore, um, but I've had it before. And so maybe I can, you know, find re- fulfilling relationships again. So nostalgia boosts that kind of confidence of like, confidence of, yeah, we've lost something, but we can, we can um, not necessarily restore it, but even build and create new relationships. Mm. Alan, what are the different kinds of nostalgia we can experience? One of the things that I think is really great is people have started distinguishing different kinds of nostalgia. So as Clay mentioned, there's personal nostalgia for things that have happened in your own specific past, like a relationship you had as a kid or something like that. But there are also communal or historical forms of nostalgia, which are quite different. They they might be nostalgia for a time that you never experienced, so a collective historical myth of a, a time long ago when things were much better, um, or they might be nostalgia for a sort of sense of a historical time that you did experience, so rather than a relationship that you had as a child, it might be the culture that you believe existed when you were a child. And I, I think it's really important to distinguish those different forms, because they can have very different effects, both on you and on the people around you. Now, it's interesting, Alan, nostalgia was actually considered an illness in the 17th and 18th centuries. Why? Well, the etymology of the word actually is related to homesickness. And the idea was that if you were longing for something that you didn't have or was in your past, then that that longing, which would cause you pain, it's a sickness, and, you know, homesickness was pathological. And nostalgia was not thought of as a kind of means to hope, but rather as a, a, a pathology that you wanted to get rid of 
lest you be dissatisfied with your current state. So what changed, Clay? Why don't we think of it as an illness anymore? Well, it, it's a really funny story, you know, kind of funny, a wild story. Like it was very much thought of as synonymous with homesickness. Um, and, it, and that was thought of originally as like a brain disease confined to Swiss mercenaries who had come down from their Alpine homes to fight wars in the plains of Europe. Eventually, like people figured out that, oh, it's not just the Swiss, French and Germans have nostalgia. Even, you know, lots of Union soldiers in the American Civil War were actually diagnosed with nostalgia when they were down fighting in the South. And so it became this, it really be thought, thought of as a disease, largely soldiers, but really anyone separated from home. You know, and then you fast forward to the 20th century and um, psychologists started to discover that it's not just a longing for home that people have. People have this longing for all sorts of objects, experiences, people, places um, from their past. And so it's not, you know, and so homesickness continued to be this very specifically focused like area of research on the anxiety caused by separation from home, whereas nostalgia took on this more broader definition of like our longing for um, lots of things and and also this more emotionally complex where most people think of homesicknesses as negative as very you know very much a, a form of anxiety they think of nostalgia as more like this mix of positive tinged with you know negative um, emotional experience about all sorts of aspects from the past that that we miss luckily in your book you write about how nostalgia can help our well-being by helping us remember that we are just at a fixed moment in space, that the past is the past, and we can maybe recreate some of the feelings we have as we move into the future. At what point can nostalgia become damaging to our emotional well-being? Yeah, well, most of the time that that, that relationship is actually the the reverse. And it's, you know, it's hard for people kind of to distinguish cause and effect when they're experiencing th- these things. But typically, it's that form of melancholy. It's like, it's that like sense of like sadness or loss um, that then triggers nostalgic feelings. And so, you know, since the two go, you know, tend to go hand in hand, we think of, oh, like maybe nostalgia is making me sad. But usually it's sadness making people uh, nostalgic. And then what nostalgia is doing is it's, it's um, especially if people really use it intentionally, um, it's helping them figure out, well, what is it that I'm missing? Like, wh- really, what, what do I think was better in the past, and you know, mo- and I've been doing this research for 25 years, and most people who say, "Oh, the past was better," what I've learned is they n- they don't actually think that there are specific features of the past that they think could be better, um, and so they're they're pulling on on that. We just don't always ca- capture that when we ask very generic questions like, "Oh, was the past better than the the present?" Let's head to a quick break. When we return, we hear about specific times in history you're feeling nostalgic for. Back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Hey. 
I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. This message is brought to you by Wondery. In the climate-ravaged year of 2072, the city of Pura protects residents from global catastrophes. But a dark secret threatens Pura's very existence. Binge all episodes of The Last City ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Clay, you argue that nostalgia can help us lead more meaningful lives. How? So the the past is is done, right? We don't have we don't have as much as people like me like science fiction. We don't actually have time machines. We can't go back and change the past. Um, the future's un, unknown, though, and that's that's both scary and exciting, right? It it, it, it can cause anxiety um, because you know we don't know what's going to happen, but it also gives us opportunity to to build better lives, to to advance progress. And so what nostalgia often does is since the future is like this, you know, it's like this unknown adventure that we have to walk, you know, towards, we need, we need tools and resources to help us figure out what decisions to make in life, what we should prioritize. Life's full of distractions and all sorts of different opportunities and choices. And these cherished memories from our past, um, when we bring them to mind, can help us sort of move forward with a sense of like purpose and confidence. We can say, you know, I don't, should I take this job? Should I move to this city? It's like, well, what's really important to me? Well, here's the memories that I really cherish and that can help, that can help guide me in my decision-making. And so um, humans are, you know, naturally in search of meaning. We want to live purposeful lives. It's a, it's a powerful motivational force. When we don't have meaning, we're at greater risk of mental health problems and, and all sorts of other um, issues. And so nostalgia can really help like remind us of what actually gives our lives meaning, which most of the time is, you know, close relationships, family, the people we care most about, the people we feel like we can, you know, make a positive difference in their lives. At the same time, how do we balance the benefits of nostalgia against the <laughs> let let's say the sometimes questionable reliability of our memory? Um we've probably all dated a person, broken up with them. And there's been a little bit of time and you start to, you know, you stumble over a picture and you start to have warm feelings again and you make the mistake of picking up the phone just to check in and see how they're doing because the memory is not reliable. So how do we balance those things? Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. So, yeah, the nostalgic memories, they they tend to be more abstract or like our feelings for them to, you know, tend to, it's like a gist of experience, the experience as opposed to like the detailed, uh, a detailed recollection of the experience. And so, you know, one of the things, you know, I, I tell people is when you're using nostalgia, it's, it's good to like pull, like, what are some lessons I can learn out of this? You know, not so much like, how can I repeat this exactly? Cause like I said, the past has already happened. You, you, you can't um, repeat the past, but what you can do is say, you know, maybe that relationship didn't go well, but there were there were features of that person I liked. Like people are complicated, and um, and so maybe going forward in my relationship future, I, I can look for you know I can look for those qualities while at the same time those qualities that I really brought me a lot of joy, but try to avoid the things that you know caused a lot of problems. And sometimes the thing that caused a lot of problems was the person. You know, Alan. You argue that we should be careful of so-called golden age myths. First, what are those? From a comparative religion perspective, if you look at virtually 
any religious or philosophical tradition, the ancient Greeks had a golden age myth, literally, when the gods had created people that were made of gold. You have the Garden of Eden story in Abrahamic religions, in many indigenous traditions. You have stories of a time in the past when everything was great, and then we broke some rules or people got worse, and we ended up in the present. And I think it's really important to learn from those myths that when we, you know, when we hear people saying, I'm nostalgic for the 70s, it's not because the 70s were different. It's because at every moment in time, we have always looked back at a mythic past and thought that it was better. And that, and that should be cautionary when it comes to evaluating the, the truth of our ability to look into the past and see something better. Well, that takes me to this email we got from Nan, who writes, I grew up in the 50s and 60s. I rode my bike all around the neighborhood without a helmet. Of course, my parents had no idea where I was. The freedom to explore and not constantly worry about safety is something I think our children miss greatly. I think we create our own anxiety. Alan, I'd love your thoughts on that. One of the things nostalgia does, and this, is, this, this goes to what Clay was saying, is it gives us stability when we are uncertain or anxious about the present by simplifying things. So you can look back at the past and say, oh, I really remember the freedom that I had in the past. And what's happened is you've abstracted out all of the other things that that freedom might depend on. So for example, the freedom in the past might come from the fact that most people weren't free to move out of their communities. So maybe you knew your neighbors more, or maybe there were relatives living in the area. And of course, that, that's a trade-off. You might have a, a childhood in which you were freer because you knew the people in your community, but also as an adult, you might have been, those, you know, your parents or your relatives might have been restricted from moving. They might have had less freedom. So one of the things that worries me about nostalgia is that we abstract out all of the costs and we are left only with the benefits. That person that um, left their memory about you know, racism in the past, that's a really good example. The 70s might have felt like a time of hope, but that hope itself depended on the fact that things were really bad back then. They were, they were worse in many ways when it, came to, when it came to rights than, than things are now. But, but similar to Clay's point about using nostalgia as a way to extract lessons from our experience are there ways in which golden age myths are useful? I, I hate to be the stick in the mud here. <laughs> um, I think they are useful short term. We seek to deal with uncertainty, and a great way to do that is with a fantasy. You can lose yourself in all kinds of fantasies. It could be a book. It could be a golden age myth. It could be a myth about your past. But I think that comes at a real cost. That short-term stability Maybe a better approach long-term would be recognizing that the past is complicated, um, which would make us more capable of dealing with uncertainty and trade-offs in our present life. You know, look at, looking at a mythic past and hoping that you can recreate something like that, uh, some kind of paradise in the future, in the long-term, I think it's going to leave you disappointed. So it, it might be good for dealing with acute anxiety, but I, I don't know that it's such a good strategy in the long term and for communities. Alan, why is nostalgia such a powerful political tool? We all crave, as Clea said, identity and stability. And if someone offers you a powerful story in which you can have a fixed identity that gives you meaning that's connected to a tradition or a past, 
that's going to feel really, really good. And politicians everywhere, leaders everywhere, religious leaders, political leaders have known this, which is why we hear these stories again and again of the good old days. There's also what that activates as well is, is a fear of pollution. So things were better in the past and then outside forces came in, they polluted us. So it, it not only gives you a sense of identity, but also it gives you a, the optimism comes from a solution to whatever uncertainties you're feeling now. And that solution often involves purifying your group so that can, you, you can return to the, the better time in the past when your group was the, was the dominant group. Clay, does feeling nostalgic always mean that the experience we're remembering is a positive one? No, that was actually one of the things that surprised me when starting to do this research is my my initial thought about nostalgia was it was this, okay, you have these really fun memories, these really happy memories, and then people in difficult times when they feel anxious about something, they, they bring to mind these memories just to comfort themselves. And so from that perspective, I thought of it as a very like defensive form, and that could even have a number of negative effects. One of the things that surprised me is when we started to actually – go out and collect narratives. So we would go out and we'd ask people to share nostalgic memories with us. And at the time, I was a professor in, in England, in Southern England. Um, we collected all these narratives from older British adults. And I was, I was actually quite shocked at the number of them that wrote about nostalgic memories from their early childhood when Britain was being heavily bombed by Nazi Germany. And they had these nostalgic memories for really this horrific time when their fathers were, most of their fathers were on the continent fighting in Europe. They were separated from, 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 from family. There was all this um, you know, tragedy and distress in their lives. But they would talk about within that um, there were these moments where they were reminded of what was really important in life. All the nonsense was kind of stripped away, and it was a real focus on, on their family, on you know the, the the protection of their country, and and these sort of elements. So that's when I really first started to discover that nostalgic memories aren't inherently always just joyful memories. Um, sometimes they're like these very complex. Memories, just like you know, you watch a movie. Do you want to watch? You know, do we like movies or read stories that are just purely happy? You know, we often like conflict or we like tragedy, especially if there's a redemptive component or there's um, triumph over tragedy. And nostalgia is often like that. We like to see how people come out better um, as a function of a of a difficult experience. Let's head to a quick break. Up next, we speak to a fashion expert about Gen Z and the styles making a comeback in no small part because of social media. More from you and our guests in just a moment. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. The day's top headlines, local stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place, your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Let's get back to the conversation and bring in another voice. Yvonne Richardson teaches fashion marketing and branding at Nottingham School of Art and Design in Nottingham, England. Thanks for joining us. Now, Yvonne, much of your research is focused on Gen Z and brand marketing for that group. What did you find in your research about Gen Z's particular relationship to nostalgia? 
Yeah, um, I mean, it's a really interesting interplay of factors. Um, and I think, you know, I'm quite interested in the psychology behind it. So, and I do an awful lot of research into that generation. And it came out that a lot of them are sort of quite obsessed with, with nostalgia. And it's not a new thing. All generations are obsessed with or into nostalgia. But it seemed to be that Gen Z were particularly the case. So I was quite interested to dig a little bit deeper into the why of why they were. And I think there's a number of factors of why they are so interested in it. And I think like previous, you know, the guests on the show have been saying that nostalgia has this, this big comforting force, particularly during times of uncertainty. And this is particularly relevant for, for Gen Z. So they've grown up in a time of significant economic, social, environmental challenges. And I think in a way, nostalgia is sort of almost like an escape from the noise. Um, you know, there's, there's numerous research that's shown that we're more likely to feel nostalgic in times of upheaval. So that's why emerging adult older, older age, we tend to be a bit more nostalgic. Um, so I think it, it just, it's a bit of an escapism um, and a sort of a sense of security and a sense of comfort. Um, but I think it's, it's probably more than that with this generation. And I think it's particularly interesting when it comes to fashion. Um, because whilst it does give them that sort of sense of comfort, I think it also has, it's not just about being stuck in the past, it can actually help develop their identity. So I think nostalgia can have this really powerful, positive, generative force. And it's been used by this younger generation to develop their identity and creativity. And I say we've seen this particularly in fashion, and there was a study done back in 2015, which looked at whether nostalgia contributed to higher creativity. And it showed that you know a nostalgic state of mind you know is a force for creative endeavors and and I think this is how this generation are using nostalgia they're not just mimicking the past they're well, actually taking past fashions and putting their own slant on it um and sort of creating something quite fresh you, and you, just sort of what's happened. You also research the tiktokification <laughs> of nostalgia. What is that? Yeah, I mean, this this again refers to, again, it's sort of nostalgia for teenagers is nothing new. You know, teenagers in the past are into sort of past trends, what have you. But what's different about Gen Z and teenagers today is obviously social media has um, really sped up the sort of the churn of trends. So whereas perhaps in the past, you know, sort of the, the trend cycle might have been about 20 years, now they're sort of like, it's it's so fast. It's sort of sped up. They're going through different eras at such a fast pace, much more so than previous generations, simply because obviously, you know, the algorithms, the sort of speed of sort of trends, they can sort of like speed through like wildfire on, on social media. So what, what specific fashion trends are we seeing Gen Z embrace from the past? Well, at the moment, it's, it's very much about, you know, the Y2K, sort of the 2000s is still, I mean, that's been around for a while, but it's still hugely popular. Um, I mean, some of the sort of nostalgic fashion trends that are making a comeback recently are, you know, we have the bell bottoms from the 1970s, tie-dye, puff sleeves from the 80s, chunky sneakers from the 90s, Ugg boots. And I suppose what's different is that you're, you're getting so many different eras all at once with this generation. They mix and match and give it a modern twist. So they're bringing back 90s grunge, 70s boho chic or 60s mod aesthetics, um, you know, through the whole sort of vintage clothing. So I think that, you know, so the Y2K continues to be really popular, um, but they're sort of sort of creating their own sort of like um, blend of those those different eras. 
That's Yvonne Richardson. She teaches fashion, marketing, and branding at Nottingham School of Art and Design in Nottingham, England. Yvonne, thank you. Thank you. Still with us is Clay Rutledge. He's a psychologist and author of the new book, Past Forward, How Nostalgia Can Help You Live a More Meaningful Life, and Alan Levinovitz. He's an assistant professor of religion at James Madison University. Clay, you surveyed Gen Z adults and found that they had really high levels of nostalgia for a time before smartphones. Why? Yeah. Well, again, I think it speaks to a a lot of what we've been talking about. I mean, you know, people... It's it's kind of a, a trope for older generations to be like these kids these days, and you know, and picking on like you know specifically you know maybe over reliance on uh, on technology. But if you actually ask young people, they themselves feel conflicted about these technologies, and they feel like they're online too much, or they they see the negative side of things. They're not, they're they're not dumb. They're like well aware of the the, the trade offs they're experiencing by on the one hand having more opportunities to connect, but also um, some of the challenges associated with it. And so I think what they're expressing is they're saying, if there was a time, you know, my parents and old, you know, maybe older siblings and cousins talk about this time before smartphones, when people actually got together and did things. And, and they're saying, you know, maybe there's a lesson there. Like maybe there's a lesson that we can not throw away our smartphones. Again, from, from, my, from my experience and my research, Almost no one actually wants to return to the past and live the way they did. What they're saying is maybe there's a lesson in the past. Maybe we can develop um, ways to use smartphones more intentionally so we get the benefits that we gain from you know advances in technology and reduce some of the consequences. And you know just to add quickly, like I think that's the way you know th- that point about creativity. I think that's one of the surprising and cool things about nostalgia is like there are new ways we are doing nostalgia, of course, in the modern world. But this is an ancient experience, and this is how um, cultures pass down information and how we advance progress. It's like we take something we learned from a previous generation and we say, they got this right, they got this wrong, here's what I would do, here's what's applicable for today's challenges, here's how I would change things, and we mix things up. And I've talked to lots of entrepreneurs, lots of artists, lots of designers, lots of creators, and all of them have these kind of stories of nostalgia of what sparked their passion for something, but they want to put their spin on it. They want to make it more relevant for today. They want to use what you know the, the growth that we've had as a society, um, the, you know, the progress we've made to say, okay, like there, these aspects of the past were problematic, but these aspects of the past were cool and they were and they were inspiring. And I want to weave that into to do something new, something fresh, um, but that also still makes me feel connected to the previous generations that that inspired me. But- I have to say, Alan, this is making me wonder whether nostalgia and sometimes our attachment to nostalgia limits the ways in which we understand history and understand and accept the ways in which history is present. So if we look at certain eras and say, oh, well, back then – things were better or things were worse back then, not understanding the ways in which that history may be closer to us or still affects the way we live in the present. Is that a limiting factor of nostalgia? I think it absolutely is. And I I, I love that you brought in fashion because I think it's also worth distinguishing between 
aesthetic nostalgia, like things were cool looking in the past. Um, that's something you can bring into the present, no problems. You can put on your bell bottoms and all of a sudden you're just wearing the fashion from the past. And that's something you can tweak. But if it's not about the past looking cool, but rather the past being better, um, you know, people back then were more faithful or they kept their promises or the relationships were better or, or they didn't, you know, I don't know, I don't know, didn't lie to each other as much. That's not, that's a, that's a totally different thing. And I think it's the, it's the ethical nostalgia, what I would call the normative nostalgia for a time that was actually morally better that really gets us into trouble. It makes us blind to the complexities of the past and also locks us into a kind of backward-looking vision of what improvement would be rather than a forward one. So I think aesthetic creativity might be really well served by nostalgia, whereas moral creativity I do not think is well served by nostalgia, which is why we see it linked to all these different fascist nationalist governments. I want to make sure we get to this message from Anne, who says, I'm sometimes paralyzed by my nostalgia. My husband died unexpectedly at 57, and I can't stop looking back at our time together and looking forward to life without him is scary. How do we distinguish nostalgia from grief? Clay? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's a, that's a very um, difficult challenge, because on the one hand, nostalgia does sort of help us navigate Grief. I mean, you know, we want to feel this continued connection to people that we've lost, and I think oftentimes, you know, in a very beautiful way, nostalgia helps us maintain relationships and 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 and, and continue to feel connected to, to the people that we've lost. But at the same time, like um, also, we need to balance that with with moving forward in life. And so, I, I think that's uh, that's part of the normal grieving process that you know over time generally fades, varies from people to people, of course, um, but. You know, once people get get further away from that that from the from the moment from that grief, um, the nostalgia often does have that tinge of sadness, but also helps us feel like we're still um, still connected to the people that we've lost. Well, we got some messages from folks about the changing landscape and how climate change is affecting the world around us, the world we grew up with. Alan, as, as climate change progresses and the landscapes of our childhoods change or even disappear, how could the nature of our nostalgia evolve to accommodate that loss? With climate change, I think it's going to be really important for us to be clear-eyed about how we can mitigate pathological, pathological changes to our environment while also understanding that adjusting, adjusting to climate change is going to be something we have to do and we won't be able to return to a past. I think a lot of climate anxiety is tied to a real desire to, to be in a situation that is no longer possible for us. And that's counterproductive. I think we need to learn maybe a different approach to uncertainty and to change, which is to embrace it and be comfortable with it rather than seek solace in some kind of simplicity that, that allows us to feel more stable. Well, we'll leave the conversation there for now. That's Alan Levinovitz. He's an assistant professor of religion at James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And Clay Rutledge, a psychologist. His new book is Past Forward, How Nostalgia Can Help You Live a More Meaningful Life. Thank you both for joining us. Now, just a reminder, we launched 1A+. Now, when you join 1A+, you get to listen to our show sponsor-free, and you're supporting our work. So head over to plus.npr.org slash the 1A to find out more. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame with help from Emilce Quiros. 
This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR.